Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook provides an introduction to our new series of messages on the Book of the Twelve, the Twelve Minor Prophets. And now, here's David. Good morning, everyone. And uh, did everyone get their homework assignment, their little Sunday school papers this morning? If you didn't get one, maybe the openers, if there's a few more around, if you want one. So we'll talk about that as we go through and explain that a little bit. We'll get Eve's uh, first uh, picture up there. There now, now you can start to see a bit about the, uh, the the piece of paper in your hands there as well. Get that going. Let's just give a, a moment to, uh, to the, spend time in the Lord with the Lord as we start. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word this morning. And uh, we pray that you would just excite us with, it, with the uh, themes and the things that we see in it and help us to uh, see you in, in greater depth, in greater clarity and in, in new ways even. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want you to think about connections. And making connections is, is vital for many aspects of our lives. We were recently traveling, and when you fly, you quickly become aware of the importance of making connections. Failing to connect results in real problems with getting anywhere when you're in an airport. So that's one to avoid. And we had great connections on our last trip. We just couldn't believe it. Everything went well. So that's pretty amazing. Um, Connections are essential for successful communication. If you're listening to this message online this morning, then you have established an internet connection with the Zoom link. And sometimes we have maybe difficulty hearing on the phone and we say that we have a bad connection. Every form of communication requires some kind of connection or points of contact. If any of you have already fallen asleep, then you've already disconnected from my voice. And social connections, they're really essential. It's impossible to exist as an isolated individual. Try it sometime. No, don't. We are all connected in a number of ways. You were born connected to your parents, and like it or not, you are connected to your extended family. As a community, we're all connected by our location as well as our roles in the community. And we derive a sense of self, our sense of self from our connections. These connections give us meaning, significance, and purpose. We're part of a larger whole. The scriptures teach us that as members of the community of believers, we are all connected to one another like parts of the body. As Christians, we also enjoy a connection with Jesus. So there's one aspect of connections that I would like to consider, and that is that connections enable us to see patterns and make conclusions. Some of you have already connected those dots in your mind, and when you look up the sky, you see the Big Dipper. Some sort of connection there. There's no lines drawn, but we make the connections. When we connect dots, we suddenly understand what is being taught or we see a bigger picture. So this is like dot-to-dot puzzles like we did as children. You know, can, you, can you tell what that's a picture of up there? I mean, that one's more challenging than the one I handed out. It's got a hundred dots. So the ones I gave you only have twelve. But does, does that help you that, uh, see the picture? Yeah, this is what I was doing when I was supposed to be preparing for a sermon. <laughs> 
Why in the world am I talking about connections when I'm supposed to be introducing the last 12 books of the Old Testament? You're probably wondering if there's any connection between my introduction and these books. So my ob- object- objective this, for this message today is to introduce you to the concept that these books are a connected unit. For me, examining the scriptures from different perspectives piques my interest and motivates me to study them in greater depth. It was only about a year and a half ago that I was first made aware of the concept that these 12 books could be a literary unit. And I was out snowshoeing on the trails next to our house and listening to a podcast on where a biblical scholar was being interviewed on their work on the Book of the Twelve. Until then, I referred to these last 12 books as minor prophets, and that's what we're more familiar with when we when we talk about them. And that this was the name that was given to them apparently by Augustine, that uh, great theologian of the 4th and 5th century. But what were they called before Augustine came up with that name? So the Hebrew Bible was compiled and arranged over centuries. There's archaeological evidence that these 12 books were brought together as a collection and copied onto a single scroll in the centuries before Jesus was born. The scroll of the twelve prophets was similar to the scroll of Isaiah or the scroll of Jeremiah or the scroll of Ezekiel. And each of those scrolls are of comparable length or diameter, I guess, if you're talking about a scroll. The scroll that contained these twelve writings was referred to back then, apparently, as the twelve prophets or the book of the twelve. Or sometimes they were called just the twelve. So these 12, were they simply bundled together on one scroll because they were relatively small and could all fit on the standard scroll? You know, I don't standard scrolls come in standard size, but that might be one reason they were all put together on that scroll. But I would like to suggest that there's a number of connections between these writings. And it's profitable to look at each one individually, as we're going to be doing through this series. But I think there's a significant value in seeing connections between them. Perhaps our understanding of their message will be enhanced. We may discover deeper meanings and purposes in their message, and we might be able to connect the dots and see a bigger picture. There are a number of features in these books that suggest that they are connected. These include common themes, shared words and quotations, repetition of verses, shared metaphors, and common biblical quotations or illusions. Tim Mackey, who leads the Bible Project, I like to listen to that podcast, he likes to call these kind of things hyperlinks. You know, when you have your internet page open and you see a blue highlighted area, click on that and it'll take you immediately to some other place. Those are hyperlinks. And we we don't have time to go into all of these connections that I just mentioned, but I'd like to take the remaining time to look at a few examples of the connecting themes that run through the Book of the Twelve. And this will be sort of serve as our way of introduction to the theme. Now, so you've got your, your puzzles there in your paper. This is the first one. And as I said earlier, my objective for this message is to persuade you, or at least have you consider that these twelve books share connections. If at the end of my talk you remain unconvinced, that's okay, but I hope that you will still find something of value in this overview of the twelve. In order to help you visualize these connections, I've created a few puzzles 
And uh, I've made a number of copies and you've hopefully got one. If nothing else, these puzzles will help you to learn the order of these books as they are arranged in the Hebrew Bible or in our Old Testament. Because instead of numbers, one, two, three, four, you have to connect the dots in the biblical order of these books. So there you go. This is the, the challenge. They are, they're not too difficult to puzzle because there's only 12 dots. And the image that you, that you create by connecting these dots is meant to illustrate one of the connecting themes that I see in these uh, 12. So maybe you've already got started on your puzzle. You can do the first one, connect the dots, and try and guess the first theme. Theme. I'm going to reveal the answer in just a minute. So to identify this theme, we will, be, we will begin at the beginning of the 12, the book of Hosea. That is the first dot in case you're having trouble getting started. Okay, so <laughs> we'll start with Hosea. The first three chapters of this book give us an illustrated summary of the whole 12 books, I think. In a nutshell, here's the story. Hosea marries Gomer. Gomer is unfaithful. Hosea and Gomer get back together. So that's that's a pretty timeless story. We, uni- we can universally understand what's going on there. And you could probably make a movie with that sort of outline. It's the story of grace and the gift of hope, which is the broader title of our series. Hosea's marriage is a metaphor for the relationship between God and his people. And I would say all people. God established a covenant with his people. That's like a marriage. His people prove unfaithful. God calls on his people through his prophets to return to the Lord. The Lord desires to be reunited with his people and extend his mercy and grace to give them a future hope. So did you connect the dots? There's the, uh, there's the dots connected. Have you guessed the theme yet? Any, any guesses? <laughs> so if you didn't get the right puzzle, that might help you. But anyway, here it is. The return. That's what that arrow is supposed to mean. You turn around. You're going back the other way. So the theme is return. The prophets are pleading with the people of God to return to God. So you can write return in there on the top of that first puzzle. So let's briefly skim through the 12 and identify a few of the connecting references to this theme. I'm going to be reading quite a few passages of Scripture, so you'll have to just... Uh, they're all up here on the, on the screen, but if you're trying to follow in your, in your Bibles, you'll be flipping pretty fast, so here we go. Sorry. So in Hosea, we're in the beginning of the 12, Hosea 4, 1 to 3, he sort of identifies the problem that runs through the whole 12 books. And this is the problem that's ongoing. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. That is why your land is in mourning and everyone is wasting away, even the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are disappearing. But Hosea calls on the people to return to the Lord. In Hosea 6, 1-3, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now He will heal us. Doesn't that sound like the song that we sang earlier? He has injured us. Now He will bandage our wounds. 
In just a short time He will restore us so that we may live in His presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord and let us press on to know Him. And if we continue in Hosea in chapter 14, he, he continues with these verses, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. The Lord says, Then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. This theme of God's love for His people and His desire for them to return is restated a number of times in the book of the Twelve. And let's look just quickly at a few more examples. Here's Amos' message. Amos 5. Now, this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. Don't worship at the pagan altars at Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Come back to the Lord and live. Skipping over a bunch more, let's just look for the, the last two books of the Twelve. In the Zechariah 1-2, I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. And then the last book in Malachi also restates exactly this theme in Chapter 3, now return to me and I will return to you. So you get the idea that this theme, and I've skipped a whole bunch, runs through the book of the Twelve. But I find it interesting that in Malachi, God declares in Malachi, a verse that we all are familiar with somewhat, in 2.16, he says, uh, I hate divorce. God could this be God speaking about the grief that he experiences when his people are unfaithful and they break their marriage vows to him? To return to the Lord is to turn back or repent. The prophets speak of this act using a number of different illustrations. But to demonstrate the close connections between some of these books, I would like to look at Joel and Jonah for a few minutes. So Joel is, was one of the key books of the Twelve. It's kind of an outline for the Twelve. It's the second book in the Twelve, as you've discovered from your dots. Um, but Joel, he picks up that theme right away in, in chapter 2.13, return to the Lord your God. So let's look a little closer at Joel's instructions to the people on how they should demonstrate the sincerity of their desire to return, or in other words, their repentance. So Joel 1 says, this is this um, is Joel talking to tell the priest, but he's talking to the whole people, as in, you will see. Dress yourselves in burlap and weep, you priests. Wail, you who serve before the altar. Come and spend the night in burlap, you ministers of my God, for there is no grain or wine to offer at the temple of your God. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the peoples of the Lord into the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to him there. The Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. 
Return to the Lord your God, for He is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Who knows? Perhaps He will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. Blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, and even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar. Let them pray. Spare your people. Pretty intense uh, call to repentance. So what is it that, uh, in a nutshell, that Joel's prescription for repentance? He's asking the people to dress in burlap, fast and weep, and gather in a solemn assembly and prayer to demonstrate the sincerity of their repentance. So I want to skip over to the book of Jonah. And this is a very interesting book. It's not written to the children of Israel. In a sense, it deals with Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And this is, I want you to compare what the people of Nineveh did when Jonah preached to them about the coming destruction of of their city, that God was saying he was going to destroy this city in 40 days. So here we have in the book of Jonah, this is what the people of Nineveh did when they heard this message. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast, put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Did you notice the similarities between what Joel tells the people of Israel to do and what the people of Nineveh actually did? The Ninevites of all people did exactly what Joel told the children of Israel to do. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria and represented the worst of human behavior. The cruelty of the Assyrians was unmatched and they were responsible for the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and most of the southern kingdom in Judah. If anyone deserved God's judgment, it was them. Yet here they are doing exactly what God expected of his people. They even went above and beyond the requirements by extending the fasting and wearing of burlaps to the cows and the sheep. Notice too the repetition in Jonah for the king of Nineveh's reason for these actions when he says, who can tell? Perhaps even God will change his mind. That's exactly what Joel says when he says, who knows, perhaps he will give you a reprieve. So these close parallels demonstrate a significant connection between these two books with respect to the theme of return and repentance. Okay, time for your second uh, puzzle. 
While we're in Jonah and Joel, I'd like to point out a, a second connecting theme that runs through the twelve. Did you uh, uh, get the uh, picture yet for this puzzle? You got all the dots connected? Did you get something that looked a bit like that? I don't think it's too difficult to see the image, but guessing the theme may be a little bit challenging. Any, any guesses here? You, got, you didn't guess for the easy one, so if you want to get to the hard one. Uh, so th- this obviously a scales with a balance. And one of the themes that runs through the, uh, through the 12 is this idea of mercy and justice, the balance between those two things. So the 12 contain a significant amount of material which invites the readers to meditate on God's character. How can God be both, be, most, be both merciful and just? And why does he demonstrate one of these aspects sometimes and the other aspect at another time? So you can write in mercy and justice at the top of that, uh, of that uh, puzzle. But several of the books of the Twelve, including Joel and Jonah, Examine this theme by quoting or alluding to Exodus, chapter 34. We don't have time to go to the 12. Here I'm going back to Exodus. I know it's kind of silly. But here's this verse. It's a really important verse. So Exodus 34. Yahweh, that's God's name if you haven't heard that one before. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and, and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Now, according to my Bible nerds in the Bible Project, this passage is the most quoted passage in the entire Bible. If you include all of its allusions and partial quotations in the scriptures. So the book of the Twelve contains a significant number of these and you should keep your eyes peeled as you read through the, the Twelve and see if you can spot this verse, these verses. It's significant that the Lord revealed himself to Moses with these words right after Israel broke their covenant vows with the Lord by worshipping a golden calf. God's mercy and justice were revealed in that event And when the twelve are being written, the problems of Israel remain the same. The covenant unfaithfulness or the marriage breakup. So Joel is calling on people to return to God because he is merciful and forgiving. I think we read these verses earlier, but we'll read them again. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. So there you see partially the quote of Exodus 34. If we go on to Jonah, on the other hand, he's upset with God because God is merciful and forgiving. Jonah had just delivered God's message predicting Nineveh's destruction in 40 days, but it seems that God was not going to go through with the threat And Jonah is upset about that. And he says, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. So you go to just go to Nahum's book, though, on the other hand, and you get a different take on this theme. 
as God's judgment on Assyria does fall in the book of Nahum. And this is what Nahum says, The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose Him and continues to rage against His enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but His power is great and He never lets the guilty go unpunished. So here's the dilemma. Sometimes we want God to be merciful and sometimes we want justice. Does anyone know why God chooses one or the other? And it's uh, uh, this this, um, balance that the prophets are, are examining. I want you to consider Habakkuk. Now, he was the prophet of the Twelve who directly puts the question to God to explain this dilemma when he learned that the wicked Babylonians were going to be God's agents of judgment on Judah. So here's the book of Habakkuk. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? And how does the Lord answer Habakkuk? Well, you'll have to read Habakkuk to to get a fuller answer, but a short summary might be, God says, let me be God, or Habakkuk turns, let God be God. And so this is God speaking to Habakkuk in chapter 2, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. So that's God's answer. The answer is sorted out by your response to me. That's how you decide between mercy and justice. And Habakkuk really just summarizes that when he writes in his last uh, few verses of his book, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, Even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, you would think, well, this is all terrible, right? This this doesn't get any worse than this. And then Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. The bottom line for Habakkuk was to remain faithful to God and trust in his character even when circumstances became very difficult. God will do the right thing. Well, the next, this theme connects the 12. 12 is, is, is a little bit mysterious. Uh, one uh, uh, thing, it seems to be describing two different things. It's something that is both dreadful and terrible. Dreadful and delightful, or terrible or, or terrific. You know, like, how can these things match? And yet, this is all under one theme. So you might think of fire, like something like a fire could be similar. It could be warm and comforting, or it can be destructive and lethal. So uh, if you made a connection there, your picture look a little bit like that. Pretty an easy one. And what does that make you think of? Sun, sun, sunrise, maybe? Sunset, okay. The idea of a new day. So the, the theme that runs through the book of the Twelve is often called the Day of the Lord. So that's what I was trying to make you think about there. Hopefully you can remember it from that. 
This event or events is referenced many times in the Twelve. Although the exact phrase, the day of the Lord, is frequent, even more common to find it referred to as on that day or in that day or the day of judgment or other references today. So you can keep your eyes peeled for that as well when you're looking through the, the, uh, the Twelve as you read them. So it's quite interesting to take a highlighter and go through the book of the Twelve and mark all the references today in the same color. So uh, this was my scratching on, a, on um, Amos's page there. I, I use purple, you can see, uh, the royal purple. I, I think you'll be amazed to find that the, the number of marks that you make when you do that. Just as a side note, the day of the Lord could be considered any day that the Lord intervenes in the affairs of the world in some dramatic way. In a sense, there would be multiple days of the Lord, even in the twelve. For example, the day that Assyria conquered Samaria or the day that Assyria itself was destroyed, or the day that Judah fell to the Babylonians. These are all alluded to in the Twelve, but there seems to be yet a future sense of that day as we find it in this scroll. Uh, Peter in the New Testament connects the events of Pentecost to Joel's reference to the day of the Lord. And there's a sense of a yet of a future day. We don't have time to even scratch the surface of this theme, but let's turn to Zephaniah's book. He, is, he packs a lot about this day into just three chapters. Here's Zephaniah writing in chapter 1. That terrible day of the Lord is near. Swiftly it comes. A day of bitter tears. A day when even strong men will cry out. It will be a day when the Lord's anger is poured out. A day of terrible distress and anguish. A day of ruin and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. A day of trumpet calls and battle cries. So it's, it sounds like a day you really want to be uh, avoid in some ways, right? <laughs> from, from that. But then look at what he says in the end of his book. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will delight in you with gladness. With His love He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. It's just like the opposite. How can these both be the same day? The contrast between these days is, is obvious. Are they different days? Or does the day of the Lord have two sides, like a cloud, a dark side and a silver lining? It would seem to depend on one's relationship with the Lord. For some, the day will be tragic. For others, it will be wonderful. So this ties into with my fourth and last connection. It, and uh, I think you'll be able to connect these dots fairly quickly and you get that picture. I think you're quite familiar with it. And uh, what do you, who do you think of when you, when you think of this image? Yay! <laughs> so that's the... Uh, connection I want to make in the 12 here with Jesus. Of course, I'm thinking of the connection between the 12 and Jesus. We've already referred to Joel in that, in that day that Jesus' church began. And there are quite a few other connections to Jesus. And we can only mention a few. And you can find others when you're reading it. So there's lots to, to look for. But here's a little, little chart that I put together of a few of the connections Oh, Micah mentions Bethlehem as the birthplace of a ruler for Israel. Hosea presents a picture of redemption. 
Jesus speaks of himself giving the sign of Jonah. Haggai uh, looks forward to the glory that Jesus will bring to the temple that is being built. Zechariah predicts the coming of the king riding on a donkey. And Malachi tells of the coming of a messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. So there are many other connections to Jesus that can be found in the Twelve. But I'd like to end by just quoting from the shortest book of the Twelve and the shortest book in the Old Testament. Obadiah is almost exclusively speaking about God's judgment on the people of Edom. But he finishes with these verses. In the 21st verse of Obadiah's one chapter, he says, Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom, and the Lord himself will be king. So I just find a strong connection to Jesus as the one who delivers us and brings God's grace and gift of hope for those who turn to him and return to him for deliverance. There are other connecting themes in the 12 that, and I would suggest that we search for others' connections as we study the scroll. And, and maybe I haven't convinced you yet that these 12 are a connected unit. And that's okay. It will give us lots to talk about. But for me, I think that connecting the dots brings a fresher understanding of the message of these 12 and gives us a greater appetite to learn more. And it opens me to hearing the Spirit speak through the Bible, which I believe is the unified story that leads to Jesus. Father, again, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather here. Thank you for your word, the word made flesh. We just thank you for Jesus, Lord. Pray that we'd all just be drawn closer to him through your word, through your spirit. And we pray that nobody leaves here without him and without having turned from death to life the life that we get through Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.